You've been hearing it for years. You know I love my Steel product. That's S-T-I-H-L, but I'm sure you are quite aware of that by this point in time. Go to SteelUSA.com and go shopping, man. And then go to SteelDealers.com to find the closest store in your area where you can pick things up because they have more than 10,000 around the country. So go shop online. Go make sure the house is looking great, the backyard. You're going camping. They got all kinds of stuff that'll help with that. I love battery powered. Battery powered is the way to go. Better for the environment. It's quick. It's efficient. It's powerful. Steel. They're the best. S-T-I-H-L. Again, SteelUSA.com. SteelDealers.com. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, Charlie Blackman is off the IL and knocking the cover off the ball. Couple homers over the weekend, couple triples over the weekend. Should we run it back with Chuck Nasty? I hope he's back for another year. Drew hates the NFL preseason, and so do you. Is hard knocks getting softer? And a visit with legendary Rocky sinker baller Aaron Cook. This, this place meant so much to me, and just, you know, you come back here and you... I feel like when I came down the hallway just last night, it was like it was like it was yesterday. That was the last time I was here. I don't feel like it's been 10 years. Subscribe to the Drew Goodman Podcast wherever you find podcasts and tell your fantasy football buddies. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is show number 216 coming to you from beautiful St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, not so beautiful last night as we taped this on a Wednesday afternoon. The Rockies, uh, again, trouble in the eighth inning. 16 runs they've allowed now in the last two eighth innings and lost a game on Sunday. They led 5-3, to three, lost a game last night. They led 4-3 to three against Tampa in the eighth. But uh, we move on. You know who it was good to see this past weekend? One Todd Helton. I don't know if you caught uh, Todd on our broadcast on Saturday. You know how he can't stand uh, doing interviews, but it wasn't a formal formal interview. It was just kind of shooting the bull. And uh, Todd is working for the organization and has been. I don't know if a lot of people realize that, but he travels around quite a bit in the minor leagues and you know talks hitting with uh, guys, talks the mental aspect of the game with guys, works with first basemen naturally. What a great resource for young players in the Rockies organization to be able to saddle up to Todd Helton and and ask them or ask him about you know getting to the big leagues about traveling through the minor leagues as he once did and you know all their fears and, and Todd's open and he loves talking to young players about that and uh, so. It's awesome that he is uh, he's working down there. He's really comfortable when he's talking to uh, to younger players, and uh, he's going to have an impact. He's definitely going to have an impact. But he cracked you up. I mean, he still has that that great dry wit. He looks great, by the way. He had a, a bad knee injury and an accident uh, several years back. Had a number of operations on that, but moving around great, looks great, um, in great spirits. Um, he got to uh, trash on Spilly, which is always good. As you know, that's uh, one of my favorite um, avocations. Ripping on Spilly, low-hanging fruit. Um, so there was a story. I don't know if you if you caught it during the game. This goes back um, when my oldest, Jacob, was, I don't know, he's probably 10 years old, and he's with me um, at, in the clubhouse before a game. 
and it's several hours before, and he's wearing a Ryan Spielberg's jersey. Spilly was playing then, and and it was age appropriate. It was it was a kid's uh, little jersey, and Helton sees it and he goes, "Jacob, come here." And he goes, "You're not wearing that thing." And he and he takes his game jersey out of his locker and gives it to Jacob. So Jacob's now wearing this dress that is Helton's game jersey, and he's kind of bopping around and everything. And so a little while later, I was like, you got to give that back to Todd. You know, he's got to wear that tonight or this afternoon, whatever the case may be. And so we went over to him, and and, uh, Todd said, no, that's yours. You keep it. And he ended up getting a different jersey. He was obviously, that's Todd. I mean, such a great guy. And <laughs> so when I was retelling that story with Todd on the air, Todd jumped in and he goes, yeah. He goes, it's, it's, it's not only that I didn't want him wearing a Spilly jersey. He goes, heck, Spilly didn't want to wear a Spilly jersey, which was, you know, cracked everybody up. And Spilly was, you know, on the uh, broadcast and he jumped right in. Spilly can be uh, self-deprecating with the best of them. And he said, yeah, no, I wanted to wear a starter's jersey too. I wish you'd give me uh, that jersey. I would have worn yours as well. But it was great to see Todd. Uh, as I said, he's doing well and he's uh, been traversing the minor leagues. was recently down in the Dominican Republic working with some of the kids down there. So it's awesome. He had another great line because you know how superstitious Todd was. We've told a million stories about it. You've heard a million stories about how superstitious Todd was. You know, he'd make it out and he'd shave part of his uh, beard off, make another out and he'd shave it into a mustache, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there, were, there was one time where Preston Wilson was looking for his game pants. They, they were no longer in his locker hanging. And the, the way the clubhouse attendants work a, a, a locker room is your uniform that day is hanging in your locker, the color of choice, etc. And his game pants weren't in there. Well, the night before, Preston had a big game, probably, you know, three for four with a homer, that sort of thing. So Helton had pilfered his pants because Todd maybe was 0 for 4 and was now wearing uh, Preston's pants. And Todd, again, not missing a beat when we recounted that story, uh, retold that story on the air. He said, um, he goes, yeah, he goes, I looked a lot skinnier that day too, didn't I? Preston's pants were a little, uh, the waistline was a little narrower than his normal pants. But he's classic, man. It was uh, it was good to see him. You know, it was good over the weekend, Charlie, man. Charlie Blackman just comes off the injured list. And every night, it's like he's hitting a homer or a triple. A couple homers over the weekend, a couple triples over the weekend. Uh, he's a renaissance man having a renaissance at 37 and his deal is up at the end of the year which i think many rockies fans realize and for me we haven't talked a lot about this i i hope he's back for another year and it's always that slippery slope with a, a great player when they get to that age where they're close to retirement one can they still do it can they still be productive? Is there a place for them or are they blocking someone else? And I think going forward for at least another year with Charlie, yeah, he can still play. He still gives them, for me, uh, their highest quality at bat, at bat to at bat. I really think he does. I mean, he's going to take a walk if that's what's given. Um, he's going to foul pitches off. He's going to grind no matter what the score is. And, and you're seeing the results of it. I mean, missed two months, 
and he plays like two rehab games down in Albuquerque, gets a handful of at-bats, and he comes back, and he's hitting missiles all over the place. One of the home runs he hit over the weekend was 455 feet. Um, he looks the same as he did you know, a dozen years ago. Now, can, does he move like he used to? No. Does he get more sore? Yes, he's older. Uh, but he can still be productive. And I think because you don't play him in the field a lot, you play him in a D8 spot, even um, when Hunter Goodman arrives, I'm not going to say if, because he's tearing it up in Albuquerque. And from a power standpoint, he tore it up in Hartford. And you have the young outfielders, Doyle and Jones, and at some point, Yankeel Fernandez. Um, and, and Chris Bryant, I know, has been hurt, but at some point he comes back and he's going to get reps at first base, I think, um, going forward. But I do think in 2024, um, there is a place uh, for Charlie and to have his presence for a young cast and how you go about your business and for those guys to be able to pick his brain. And oh, by the way, he still gives you, as we said, a good at bat. Um, uh, I think there's a place for him in 2024. Um, my guess is the organization would love to have him back for another year um, for the aforementioned reasons. And he's a guy that, like Todd, you want him going out in a Rockies uniform. You want him to play the entirety of his career um, in purple pinstripes. And I, and I think that can be accomplished. We'll see you know, what the organization decides, what Charlie decides also um, here um, over the next several months. Um, doesn't have to be decided, obviously, before the end of the year. But it, it got me thinking about Charlie and, and 2024 potentially with his contract ending and, and the way he has swung the bat since coming off the, um, the injured list. From Tampa, the Rockies traveled to Baltimore. Always good to be in the Inner Harbor. Always good to be at Camden Yards. Um, we talk about this periodically. See so many good Rockies fans uh, around the country, picking off ballparks. Uh, I, I think if you're a hard and true baseball fan, you want to see the other parks. You want to, you know, taste their food and 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 sit in their seats and and see the city, etc. Um, and Baltimore, if you have not been, it's one of the ones that should be high on your checklist to go to. Great ballpark. The Inner Harbor of Baltimore is wonderful, and we know now that the Orioles have a heck of a team. And think about this for a moment. The Orioles are not far removed from being horrific. In 2021, they lost 110 games. In 2019, because 2020 was an abbreviated season, they went 25 and 35, they lost 108 games. In 2018, they lost 115 games. You know, they were the poorest team in the sport. Kind of mirrors what Houston was doing, you know, a decade ago when they had three straight 100-plus loss seasons, and now, uh, you know, they have a couple of world championships, and they're in it, uh, they're in, in this period of time, they're in it uh, every year. And Baltimore is really, really good with a really young nucleus, and they still have a very deep uh, farm system. So it'll be good to see uh, see the Baltimore Orioles. It'll be good to be at Camden Yards, good to be uh, in the Inner Harbor. Transitioning to football, I managed to get through the last two or three shows without once mentioning preseason football to the best of uh, my knowledge or memory on that uh, subject. But I will go there, albeit briefly, 
I've done this in the past. I love, love, love the game of football. I love it at the professional level, the NFL level. Let me say that. I'm not watching the spring leagues. I love the NFL. I love college football. I love high school football. Not into preseason football. Not into it. I've covered it many times, broadcast it. It's pretend football, and we try to make huge storylines where there really are not any. The nucleus of a club, the depth chart on a club, with a few exceptions, is probably already in place back in April. Yeah, you're going to get a feel for some of your draft picks. That's fair. That is legit. You're going to get a feel maybe for a couple of the free agents you brought on, but probably if you brought in a, uh, a free agent and you paid them a healthy salary, you paid them to play. So they're already high up on the depth chart. Everything else that takes place in these preseason games, who cares? Like, who's going to be the the swing tackle? Um, who will be the the ninth DB that you keep? Who will be the fifth edge rusher, or will you only keep four edge rushers and you keep an extra inside backer? I mean, that's what it comes down to. And then the next time those guys are mentioned, it's like week four when somebody makes a nice play on special teams. And you go, oh yeah, there's that guy we were talking a lot about in week two of the preseason. If it was so damn important, wouldn't the quarterbacks and the star players, wouldn't they play more than a handful of snaps in the preseason? I mean, it's somewhat controversial in New York with the Jets and their new quarterback, the future Hall of Famer Aaron Rodgers, that he's going to play against the Giants in their annual tilt in the Meadowlands. A lot of people were saying, why play him? You know, he's getting all his reps in practice. Why risk Thibodeau coming off the edge and sacking him and him getting hurt? That's what preseason footballs come down to. Do you remember way back... You have to be a little older to remember this. So when I was growing up, there were 14 NFL games, and there were six preseason games. You literally played almost half a season that did not count. Six games that did not count. Thankfully, they've got it down to three, and I can't wait till they're less than that. Speaking of the Jets and hard knocks, I've always liked hard knocks when I've come across it. It's not been destination television for me. But when I've come across the HBO special, it's usually been entertaining. And here's why. Whenever you can take a fan somewhere where they don't customarily go or where they've never been, albeit behind the proverbial curtain, it's a good thing. It's of interest. And most of us don't get to sit in in private coaches meetings when they're talking about personnel so on previous hard knocks that's been of great interest or where the language is authentic on the field on the practice field in the locker room again taking people behind the curtain somewhere they they can only imagine so it's, it's been a, a really good product. Now, I've heard, and I've, I've only caught a, a little bit this year, but I've heard people say that it, it's not as entertaining as it's been in the past. 
And it's probably understandable in that the league really wants it because it promotes the league and anything in the interest of marketing the league, they're going to get behind in a big way. Again, we get that. From a coach's standpoint, from an organizational standpoint, they don't want much to do with it because they don't want cameras everywhere. They don't want folks behind the curtain. There is the slicked up view of coaches and players behind the microphone on the dais. We understand that that's going to take place every week. But the unvarnished behind closed doors and how coaches may talk more authentically about a player or about a group of players, I understand why they don't want that. And I understand why it seems like it's it, there's less of that in these uh, latest versions of hard knocks as opposed to what we were seeing uh, somewhat earlier on. Now, if you get a guy like Rex Ryan, who, who has a... You know, probably doesn't care as much when when Rex was coaching. Um, it's going to be super entertaining. But I also know that if I was a coach, I'd be really leery of having all that's said behind closed doors revealed. So again, I, I can't really comment any greater than that on Hard Knocks. I've I've always felt like it's uh, you know it, it's entertaining and it's good television. It's good for the fan. But I also understand clearly from a coach's standpoint, even from a player's standpoint, there's a limit to what they want us to see. Perception and reality, right? Hey, real quick to baseball again. Tampa Bay, this is, I, I've always said this, it's sad. When, when you're in Tampa and you go to the Trop, like the first ball game, there was 10,235 people. That was the announced attendance for one of the best teams in baseball, the Rays, who are going to make the playoffs for the fifth consecutive year. And I know the Rockies are not a big draw. And I know it's Tuesday night in August and kids are getting back to school, et cetera. But 10,235. And this has been an ongoing thing. They're out there on an island in St. Pete. And it's you know tough for the folks in Tampa to go across the causeway. The Trop is you know not a great stadium, to say the least. But still, 10,000 folks. I, it plays to their advantage. It really does. Because it's underwhelming. For any team coming in, there's not the the natural enthusiasm that you could draw off of when you're in quote unquote enemy territory and all the fans are you know are rooting against you that sort of thing. I mean, you're you're playing it almost in a library, and so I think it, it plays certainly to Tampa's advantage, and the stadium does also with the with the roof where the ball blends into the roof um, and the super fast turf. All of that plays to the advantage of the Rays. And the Rays always have a good team. Rays have, the Rays have been a model franchise in how to do more with less. And there's an expectation. I was talking to one of their coaches. There's an expectation that's been built with Tampa that you just win. And they harp on that in the minor leagues, winning together. And we had touched on that not all that long ago because when, when Ryan Spielborgs was coming up and Corey Sullivan and that group that ultimately had a lot of success, 07 through 2010, they had won together in the minor leagues, the nucleus of that group. And there's an emphasis now on that with the Rockies 
coming up in the minor leagues. That doesn't mean guys aren't going to move up and graduate in midseason. We've seen that with with a number uh, of young players. Um, A a number of young uh, name players have moved on. But there is an emphasis, a greater emphasis, on teams winning and playing winning baseball, not just about individual stats uh, at the minor league level. And that's one of the things that's uh, evidently worked for the Tampa Bay Rays, but it's uh, I've, I've been here before, and it still amazes me when you look out and you have a, a high quality team, and yet there's only a handful of fans there. So um, interesting. Speaking of interesting, the life of Aaron Cook, who is one of the top pitchers in Rockies history, super sinker baller, and a guy that is also I think leading an interesting life now post baseball, and uh, not too long ago. Cookie was in town, and we had a chance to sit down and chat about not only baseball, but about his very unique gig that he's doing these days. I think you'll enjoy it. Aaron Cook. Hey, you remember this place? Coors Field? I do, I do. Look familiar? It looks very familiar, and uh, I've missed this weather. That's for sure. This well, is one of your boys going to school up the road yeah, at, at Golden at, at Mines. So yeah, he's going to school Mines bit. up there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so I get back here a few times a year and get to hang out and take in this weather. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a little bit nicer what I'll be going home to here in a couple of days. Ninety-nine degrees. Is there for 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 a guy that played here for a long time and had a lot of success? Are there when you walk back in? Are there immediate memories you go to? Yeah, there are, there definitely are. So you know, kind of funny is like. My buddies down in Texas and Oklahoma, they'll try to get me to tell stories, and there's a lot of stuff I just can't remember. But it was like when I came back in here and started talking, I'm like, you know, all these different little things came back and just really jogged my memory. And, uh, you know, one of the, I mean, probably the three most special things I ever did, getting called up in 2002 on my dad's birthday, August 9th, um, pitching in the All-Star Game and then pitching the World Series here. I mean, there's there's so many memories. Of course, the All-Star Game was at Yankee Stadium, but – you know, just this place meant so much to me. And just, you know, you come back here and you, I feel like when I came down the hallway just last night, it was like, it was like it was yesterday. That was the last time I was here. It don't feel like it's been 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, as a broadcaster, calling all your games, you have memories also. And I remember early in your career, there was no question you had great stuff. And it was always about your sinker. And you had one of the best sinkers in baseball. But it, at one point in time, it was like, the catchers were told, set up in the middle of the plate, cook and throw the ball over the middle of the plate because you get so much movement anyhow because you were dealing with some walks early in your career. Yeah. What's your recollection of how you kind of turned it around and blossomed as a as a big league pitcher? Well, that was, uh, that was, a, that was a big part of it right there is, um, you know, in the minor leagues coming up, I was more of a four-seam pitcher, pitched to thirds of the plate, didn't have a lot of movement, had a little bit of run, but not a lot. But once I developed that sinker, my ball's moving so much that I couldn't really pitch to just one side of the plate because, you know, pitching here, the ball don't move quite as much, but mine would still move. So it was just my mentality was I want to try to get that hitter out of that box in three pitches or less. So I want the catcher set up right down the middle, just let the ball move and uh, give myself the most opportunity to get the ball over the plate instead of if you started on the inner third or outer third, then you got less chance of actually catching the plate. So it just gave me more room to work with. Yeah. What's interesting, I just remembered that, you would come up around the same time as King Felix, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there was a lot of comparisons because you were two of the top pitching prospects in baseball. And King Felix punched a lot of guys out, which was completely different from your mindset, yeah. even though you threw in the upper 90s. 
Yeah, so my mindset, once I developed that sinker, um, and, you know, talking to pitching coaches throughout the minor leagues, um, was, you know, Colorado, course field, altitude, it takes a lot out of you. So throw as few pitches as possible, and my mindset was get the hitter out of that box in three pitches or less. And also with that mindset, being a ground ball pitcher was, it's going to take them three hits to score a run, unless I make a mistake and it goes over the fence, which that happens too. But my mentality was attack the hitter. I want to put the ball in play. I've got three all-stars in the infield behind me, possibly four, and just let them play. And I felt like I worked fast, kept the uh, infielders, outfielders on their toes, and it was just here it is and see what you can do with it. Speaking of, and you and I were laughing about this yesterday, speaking of working fast, and you had, a, I think it was 78, was it 78 or 79 pitch complete game, something ridiculous? Yeah, somewhere around there, yeah. Okay, which would have taken, in today's game, because of the pitch clock, would have taken 20 minutes. I mean, literally, you arrived at the ballpark and you would have been going home, and you know, literally a few minutes later. Do you look and go, man, this would have been really cool for me. Yeah, no, I'm, again, talking to some friends, they're like, what do you think about the pitch clock? I'm like, Honestly, for me, it wouldn't have mattered. Like, I, I wanted to work quick. I wanted to keep the hitters on their toes. I wanted to, you know, just keep everybody uncomfortable. And, you know, a lot of that went into my conditioning as well because I knew that I put in the conditioning time, I could work quicker. I could keep my pace up. But, uh, yeah, you know, with the pitch clock now, I think I think it's great for the game. I think it's great for the pace of play. I think the fans enjoy it more. But, uh, yeah, maybe some of those games that were an hour, 50 minutes, might have been an hour and 20 minutes. Who knows? Do you remember that the one particular game against the Padres, because this week you and I chat, the Padres are in town. Uh, do you remember anybody saying anything after the game like, damn, that's the fastest game I've ever been involved with or anything like that? I, I don't remember specifics, but yeah, there was like, I know it was a getaway day, I believe it was a Wednesday. You were a hero. Yeah, there was like, getaway day, we get to get out of here. And, uh, you know, I, I love pitching against the Padres. I love pitching at in San Diego, you know, at both ballparks, Qualcomm, Petco. I'm not sure what they're called now, but... Um, I just had a comfort factor, and with that, you know, them being in the NOS, they knew me, I knew them, they knew I was going to come after them, and their best chance of, you know, getting ahead of me was trying to put the ball in play early, and that day just worked out. I, I mean, 78 pitches, hour, 58 minutes, whatever it was, and it wasn't a shutout, and I gave up hits, but it was quick, and we got over early, and at when it was over, I think we all kind of looked around and be like, that wasn't even two hours yet, and then we all got to get out of town. What are your most fond memories of the 07 team coming together and did you see it blossoming into what it became? I, I did yeah so I was in a unique situation that year um, August I can't remember the date sometime in August I, I tore my oblique and uh, man it was just painful you know I felt like somebody stabbed me in the side with a knife and I was here in town when the team started going on that run and you could just feel the energy. I mean, you could. Everybody's pulling on the same side of the rope, pulling the same direction. Didn't matter what the score was in the game or what inning it was. If we were down, we just had that confidence and we knew we were going to win. And I, I remember I was here for most of it, and then I went to instructional league. I made some rehab starts and uh, leading into the, the postseason. Of course, we didn't know we were going to make the playoffs when we played that 180, 163rd game. I got in trouble for that in 02, saying we played 182 game season, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I just remember, like, everybody was, like, the atmosphere was great, attitudes were great, and we just knew we were going to win games. And it was just amazing. And I think we felt it and saw it in the clubhouse, and I think it, the fans and you guys also saw it as well. Saw Brad Hopp, good friend of yours. Great friend, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, not too long ago. And, and what always comes up for me with Brad 
because there are so many memories during the streak, is Brad's home run in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Padres, I guess, a consistent theme right now. In San Diego against Joe Thatcher, who was nasty left on left. Marine air was in. It was oh, the yeah. middle of the night. Heavy. You know, yeah, you couldn't hit the ball anywhere. And Brad hits one out, and, and, and you guys go on to win. What do you remember about that particular night? Not a lot right now off the top of my head. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly the date on that. I might not have been with the team. Okay. If it was during that streak, I might have been um, doing some rehab assignments. Okay. Do you remember certain things like Helton's home run against Saito? Oh, yeah. I definitely remember that. Yeah. And I think – and I think Spilly hit one. I think it was the same year against the Giants, maybe late in yeah. the game in, into the bullpen. Grand Slam? Yeah, Grand Slam. So, yeah, there, there's quite a few memories that I do have. And, like, you know, just that will and desire just to, to win. And I think the will and desire to win will always outweigh the will and desire to not lose. And I think that's what our team had was it, we weren't thinking, hey, we're not going to lose tonight. It was like, we're going to win. And there, there's a different mentality between those two thoughts. Yeah. How important was it? for you to get back off the oblique and pitch game four. Ultimately, we all know that, unfortunately, the Rockies didn't win any any of the four in the World Series. But you got out on that mound and, and you pitched it. You had a winning performance in game four. I mean, you had a solid outing. I think it was three runs over six innings. The yeah. cheer is terrific. Um, what, what's your recollection of that? So that, that whole process, I've always been very hard-headed, stubborn, and I think you got to have that little bit of mentality to pitch in this ballpark anyway. But I knew when it happened that it wasn't good, you know, the torn oblique. But I just had that mentality that I'm going to do everything within my control to get back and give myself a chance to pitch again. And, you know, I've learned now that I'm a little bit older that, you know, you can control the things, you control everything else you don't worry about. But that was kind of my mentality at that time was like, I'm going to control what I control. I'm going to work my butt off. I'm going to put in the effort and see what happens because – if I don't put in the effort, I won't be able to live with myself, basically. You know, like, if you don't put in the time and effort to do something and then all of a sudden you get opportunity and you're not prepared, then, you know, that I, I couldn't have lived with myself if I didn't at least try. Yeah. Were you able to soak it in? I mean, when you walked out on the mound, did you, did you look I around did. a little yeah. bit? I did, and I enjoyed every every second of it. I remember being in the clubhouse before the game, and, you know, we're, we've already lost three games, and the mood was just kind of, you know, everybody's kind of deflated a little bit. We had nine days off, and got beat three straight games and I just went in turned the radio up turned on some good music and everybody kind of looked around and said all right boys let's change our attitude let's have some fun I mean we're in the World Series how many times we get to do this and I just remember walking out on the field and I just kind of looked up the stands and I just took a deep breath and I'm like that's what I want to do my whole life and I get to do it and uh yeah it's something I'll never forget pretty special feeling next year is special also yeah uh, all-star season you were dominant uh, especially in the first half and I didn't realize this until I was doing cheating and doing a little homework to, to <laughs> visit with you because nobody does the same work, Cookie. You threw three innings in the All-Star game, yeah. right? It's normally if you get two as a starter, that's a lot. A lot of times it's now one, 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 one. Right. You got three, you got three, three shutout. Yeah, I had to work for it. It yeah, was, it was a little traffic that night yeah. you're doing. There were a couple of some of these, some of these gray you. hairs lead all the way back to 2008 at the Yankee Stadium, but uh, – yeah, I came in 10th inning, you know, talking to Clint before the game, he's like, look, I'm I'm going to try to get you in the game, but we're kind of shorthanded. You know, Lincecum got sick the night before and wasn't at the stadium. He's like, so I'm going to try my best. And he goes, but I might have to save you just in case something happens. And I was like, I'm team player. I'm like, whatever. I'm happy to be here and be part of it. And I was getting up and getting loose, and the game was tied, and they made the phone call, and Cook, you're in. I come in the stadium, 
look up at the clock, it's 12.05 in the morning. I'm like, well, my kids are probably asleep up there in the stands. They're not going to see any of this. And um, Yeah, I just, you know, next thing I know, about 30 seconds later, I got bases loaded, no outs, and Clint comes out, Russell Martin's catching, and I'm like, I'm not a strikeout pitcher, boys. And they're like, well, you can get us a ground ball. I'm like, I can do that. So I got, I think, three ground balls in the inning. Bases loaded again in the 11th, got out of it. Uh, Nate McLeod made an amazing throw to throw somebody out at home. I think that might have been the third inning pitch. I can't. There's a lot that just yeah. is combined together in my head, but it was an amazing experience and something I'll never forget. Yeah, and, and the American League, because the American League just always seemed to win the, oh, the, yeah. the All-Star game. But there was talk that had the National League pulled it out in the 13th or the 12th or whatever inning it was, it you would have been the uh, the MVP for getting three shutout innings. How cool would that have been? That would have been pretty cool. Right. I mean, looking back on it, whether or not it would have happened or not, but it's still kind of something cool to be like, what if? Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm going to steal a line from a guy, you know, Charlie Blackman, and, you know, Charlie has a unique way of describing everything. Yeah. So he, he says he has a box of special things, you know, like, so, you know, maybe his 300 double from a couple of days ago will go in his box of special things in your box or mind of special things. National League Championship ring, uh, all-star appearance, which we took at Yankee Stadium of all places, the call-up on Dad's birthday, you know, the 78-pitch game. I mean, what's the order in the box of special things? Man, I don't know if I could really put them in order. Uh, That's, I guess, why you keep things in a box, so you ain't got to... Whatever you reach in and grab that day, you kind of have those memories. But, you know, I guess it had to be getting called up because that's the one thing that every kid dreams of that plays baseball is getting called up to big leagues. And without getting that initial call up, none of this other stuff happens. So that's got to be number one. Okay. I'm going to change gears really quickly because everybody – yeah, there you go. (laughs) Everybody, you know, with X – athletes or maybe ex-movie stars go, hey, where are they now? Right? Oh, yeah. question in life. And I think, where are you now? I know you're in a great place. The family's awesome. You look terrific. Um, you know what's neat for me is what the heck you're doing every day. Oh, yeah. I will tell you this. What you do, and I'll let you describe it every day, there's no way in the world there's enough money in the world that I would do that. So go ahead and tell people what you do. So um, about three years ago, I started working with a couple buddies, uh, Scotty Rice, Larry Strip Matter, Richard Strip Matter, and uh, they own an internet company in Fort Worth. We've got about 7,000 customers. The company's called Sierra Networks. But what we do is uh, called fixed wireless. So we would climb towers, water towers, uh, grain silos, anything where we can get height because the way we get internet to the customer is from a radio on the tower directly to their house. It's got to be line of sight. So the higher we get, the better chance they are at getting a, getting a signal. These are remote areas, by the way. Yeah, remote areas. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, you know, we got some that are a little more densely populated that didn't used to be densely populated. But um, so yeah, I'll climb towers. You know, 200 feet. The highest I've had to climb is 400 feet. Um, You know, we're always harnessed in. We got safety cables on most of the towers that we climb. But yeah, a typical day for me might be climbing a tower, hanging equipment. Might be up there four hours. Might be up there six hours, and kind of keeps me young and makes me feel old at the same time. So to climb a, let's just say, a 300-foot mm-hmm. tower, how long does that take? Um, so with the harness, my harness weighs about, I don't know, 15 pounds. My tool bag weighs anywhere between 15 and 25 pounds, and then you usually carry a rope up, and the rope gets heavier and heavier the more you pull out of the box. 300 feet, 35 minutes, 30, 35 minutes. 
you huffing and puffing when you get up there? Yeah, so I, in my mind, the way that I usually climb a tower is, depending on how far apart the steps are, I do anywhere between 25 and 30 steps, and then I take a break. So what's really neat about technology these days, we got these watches. It's a heart rate monitor. So I kind of treat it like I did when I was playing. I, I get my heart rate to a certain level. I wait to come down to a certain level, and then I start climbing again. And the natural question, I asked you this yesterday, and you've gotten this when you tell people what you do, you get this every time. Were you afraid of heights? <laughs> Your answer's great, because you, you didn't know, did uh, you? Yeah, I didn't know. So uh, first time I go to climb a tower, it was actually a water tower with Scotty. He's like, are you afraid of heights? I'm like, I don't know. He goes, put on a harness, start climbing. Okay, so I put on the harness and start climbing. I get about 40 feet up. He goes, how you doing? I'm like, I'm out of breath, but I'm fine. He's like, okay, so he started coming up behind me. And uh, well, we got about 100, 150 feet up. I said, I know what you're doing. He goes, what's that? I said, you sent me up first. That way, if we got so far, I couldn't turn around and come back down. <laughs> he started laughing. But yeah, it's, it's been pretty neat. I've, in the last three years, hundreds of towers I've climbed, I couldn't even begin to tell you. Like the first six months, I used to keep track of how many, and now it's like, I don't even know how many I've climbed now. Do you ever look, do you look down? Yeah. Wow. Sometimes. <laughs> Dude, you're you're ahead of your time. You should have been like a steel worker on the on those high rises that uh, got yeah, put up walking in the those hat. balance beams yeah. up way up there. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, one last thing: when you think back on your career, and I think so many athletes feel this way, that you remember the game certainly, and but a lot of the wins and the losses they kind of just meld off into the ether, if you will. Right. But the relationships, the guys you yeah. played with, and even if you don't see a guy for five, 10, 15 years, that you can kind of pick up right it's, where you left off. Exactly, it's right where you left off. So, um, like I walked in the clubhouse yesterday and today, and there's not really many people here I played with, but there's some coaches here and some front office personnel. And I mean, I was walking down the hallway and I felt like it was just yesterday I was here. And then you pick up, you know, I seen Vinny and we sat down and caught up and it was like, man, I was just here. That's 10 years ago that we were on the field together, but you just never, you never lose that camaraderie. You never lose that. And I don't, you know, for my wife, sometimes I think she's like, why don't you keep in touch with these guys? I'm like, I do. She goes, yeah, like once a year. I'm like, yeah, but we pick up right where we left off. It's like we haven't missed a beat. And uh, it's, it's just more, more than what happened on the field. What happened in the dugout in the clubhouse and on the plane rides, that's the stuff I miss more than anything. It's just being around the guys. All right, I lied. One more. Todd Helton. Gonna be a Hall of Famer. Yes. How cool will that be for you? It'd be amazing. Um, I can't wait for the day, and I can't wait to be there. I mean, he was there. Uh, he get caught up 2000. What year did he get caught? 98. Oh, 90s. That's a long time. Yeah. I'm getting old, man. I yeah. can't remember. Oh, it was in the 90s. 90s. So he was, 97, he was, he was here say. when I got called up, and he was here when I left, and he was still playing. And you know, he he was the leader on our team. He was our captain, and. He set the tone for everybody that you're going to work hard, you're going to bust your butt, and you're going to do things right. And, you know, he, he set an example for me, and I've always looked up to him, and I respect him. Great to see you, man. Good seeing you, too. Aaron had quite a career. He really did. And it was a good catching up. I am not getting on any 200-foot ladder anytime soon. We always do that. We were doing that in Tampa the other night, you know, with the um, – with the rings they have, the the skywalks, the gangplanks, whatever the heck you, you call those uh, things that are up at the top of the roof of the trop. Huey was asking me how much money it would take for me to walk around one of those uh, rings. 
He hadn't come up with the figure yet to get me to do it. Plus, i got to make sure he's going to pay. Anyhow, good to hear from uh, Aaron Cook. We'll do it again in uh, seven days. The college football season next week is upon us. See you at TCU. So after all the hype and all the conversation and all the attention, we'll find out and get a glimpse as to uh, what kind of football team on the field, at least initially, Prime is going to have in Boulder. That will uh, afford great fascination. We'll start talking a little bit more football uh, next week as well. Take care. Stay safe. We'll do it again in seven days. Thanks for joining us.